You may have heard the old saying, if you think you know what you're doing, you most likely don't. And it's not just a cliché. When it comes to choosing your tax stack, the stakes are high. Truth is, you can easily get trapped in the app rabbit hole. A hero app one day, and not so much the next. With over 2 million apps now on the App Store, it's not hard to feel like you're wasting your money every time you download a new one. So how to choose less to do more? Myself, Nadia Berke, the founder of this project, am thrilled to invite you to our podcast episodes where we get hold of lead app founders for killer interviews to find out. On this episode of Which App for Business, I sat down with Mark Randolph, the first CEO and creator of Netflix, during an exclusive Clubhouse interview, generating a record attendance of over 2.7k live listeners globally. Mark is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, investor, and a mentor. Now let's have a dive in into the interview key highlights. Enjoy. Well, hi guys and welcome to today's session hosted by Startup Club, the largest club on Clubhouse with over 590k followers as seen today thanks to each and every one of you. Myself, Nadia Berker, the organizer of today's session, together with my two colleagues, John Fink and Maria Jordan, are the moderators of today's session. Most of you are joining regular rooms hosted by Startup Club to learn, listen, grow and expand your mind to be able to make a difference in your startup businesses or more mature business arenas to be able to make an impact. Today is a perfect occasion to enjoy an hour of inspiration, deep diving insights and proven know-how by chatting to one of the world's most talented legendary entrepreneurs. Picture this, Henry Ford, Phil Knight, Steve Jobs, disruptive entrepreneurs may append industries in different ways, but they have one thing in common. They don't think like the people they disrupt. They look at the world differently and, in my experience, more emotively too. They appear contrarian, which makes sense. To create something new, an entrepreneur must see things as they should be, rather than simply as they are. So today, I'm thrilled to announce a legendary disruptive entrepreneur, one who has changed the way we consume media today, Mark Randolph, first CEO and Netflix co-founder, now serial entrepreneur, advisor, speaker and environmental advocate, also a recent author of an Amazon bestseller entitled That Will Never Work. Mark is a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur. His career as an entrepreneur spans more than four decades. He's been the founder of half a dozen other successful startups, a mentor to early stage entrepreneurs and an investor in numerous tech ventures. The active interest less known, one of Mark's paternal great grand uncles was psychoanalysis pioneer Sigmund Freud. Mark, a warm welcome to our session today. Thrilled to have you in. Nadia, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is great. Looking forward to our chat. <laughs> Likewise. So let's kick off. Let's meet the man behind Netflix brand idea. I do the drum rolls here, but obviously it's no sound for that. 
So um, the first question mark, um, it's around the legacy, really. You once shared a what I found a great farewell quote, don't pass on the torch, pass the flame. You continued the quote by saying, open quote, these seven words managed to capture exactly how I think about corporate culture. Too many people think the corporate culture is something you design. Yet cultures aren't aspirational, they are observational. Those things you write down, put into your culture deck, are the torches, and by themselves they have no meaning. End quote. Well, can't agree more here. And my question is, in hindsight, what were the key things that you think have added meaning to Netflix culture? For instance, do you think it would be the factors that have helped scale the company or shape up the quality of the team? Well, it's obviously they're all tied together because culture just permeates everything. And the, you, you're, I'm glad you pulled up that quote because it really was it's been kind of hard for me to really express simply that idea, which is that culture is not what you say. Uh, culture is what you do. And I think especially now that everyone's talking about company culture, everyone thinks they have to design something. Uh, they become these aspirational exercises. Uh, but it means nothing if you just write it down or you hang it in your break room or you uh, you know carve it in the corner of your building. It means nothing if you don't actually do it. Um, and the best way to do it is to have the culture represent who you are. So that whole long preamble basically says that the Netflix culture was not some genius invention. It just happened to be the way that I was. It happens to be the way Reed and I treated each other, the way we made decisions. Um, and that rubs off on people. People see that. They model that. But in some ways, the Netflix culture is not that different. But anyway, most startups start that way, where you have too much to do. You have too few people, and all you can really do is tell people, all right, we're going to meet there in two weeks. Here's what you need to get accomplished. And then you don't say anything else, and you trust people to get this stuff done on their own. Make their own decisions. Decide the best way to solve a problem. But the problem is that when companies get bigger, all of a sudden, all kinds of other things get in the way. They don't want people to show up late. And so they begin saying, okay, send us a status report. And everyone groans. Or they say, you can't overspend. Let's, you need to pre-approve expenses. And pretty soon, you've burdened everybody. So if anything, the Netflix experiment was basically saying, can we preserve that startup culture forever? So I would say it's absolutely how people behave. It's absolutely the key to our growth. It's absolutely the key to why people want to work there. Thank you, Mark. Um, it's a great answer. And I think it nicely pulls into my next question around digital culture. In her book, Powerful, Building the Culture of Freedom and Responsibility, Patty McCord, who is one of the uh, founders of Netflix Cultural Deck, says that one of the core founding elements of Netflix corporate culture was the term radical honesty. Now, again, that's now massively famous, the term. And then for context, I'll share a snippet from her book. She says, I loved giving away convention. I announced going to get rid of the expense policy. Interesting. And of the travel policy. Again, interesting for a lot of companies. In spite of the lawyer's warning that it would be a disaster, we gave freedom to employees to judge how they would spend company money and we weren't disappointed. All that in the context of the so-called instilled term of radical honesty. Meanwhile, we made access to information accessible, transparent to all employees. Nearly every document was made fully open for everyone to read and comment on. Now, the comment part is, I find it particularly fascinating. And the question I have is, since these are or were very radical, almost unheard of measures, what do you think has helped them withstand the test of time? 
courage and discipline. Uh, you know, Patty alluded to the fact that when you first propose these things, there it's anathema, it's radical. I mean, and you're you know you're going to get rid of vacation policy. People are going to sue us. People are going. It's going to be a disaster. And it requires this discipline to say. Let's just try it. If it really doesn't work, if people really do sue us, if we have all kinds of other issues, fine, we'll back it off. But I think what happens is each time we stripped away some part of the bureaucracy that was just getting in the way, people loved that. And people didn't sue us. They didn't complain. They didn't get angry. They liked it. But that what it requires is the courage to push past all the people who are saying it's never going to work to say we can't do that. But again, it's just part of what was what was like being at Netflix was the sense that we're trying to reinvent a lot of things. And the answer to almost every person who said we can't do that was, well, let's just try it and see what happens. It's a nice uh, environment for obviously a startup whereby you just literally take things on, be the, the, the responsible people to actually drive the van and make it happen. And that's nicely making way for the next question, Mark. Netflix culture is known to be a set of behavioral rules, as you said, a sort of bill of rights for its employees that went viral within days after it went public and reached over 50 million views just within days. Now, I checked one of the online comments left by the readers discussing the deck and thought that Daniel Isles made a good point. He said, with um, the wrong people, the right direction won't work anyway. And with the right people, even the wrong direction is easy to pivot out of. Now, my question is, you're now a startup advisor to many ambitious, forward-looking businesses. Given your time at Netflix and the ever-changing skills market, what would be the top employee behaviors you'd promote or reward in a high-growth startup environment? Judgment. <laughs> nice. Being able, in a startup, you don't, the, the, almost the definition of a startup is, you know, a company in search of this scalable, repeatable business model, which means you do not know what that repeatable, scalable model is going to look like, which means that each day you come in, you may have some entirely different thing you need to do. You may need to change direction. And as I alluded to earlier, you're dramatically under-resourced, so there isn't time for the people to have someone who is telling you what to do or there to answer detailed questions. You need to have someone who, when they have the right information, when they're clear about what the goal is, is strong enough to make those decisions on their own, who has the judgment to make those decisions on their own. I mean, you mentioned before the policy, you know, Netflix's expense policy, which yes. is there isn't one. We trust people to make judgments about what to spend money on as if it was their own money. The travel policy, there is none. We trust people to be able to decide when is it appropriate to fly business class or first class because you're flying to a different part of the world and you have to have a meeting in the morning as opposed to when it's appropriate to fly coach because it's a short meeting or a short trip. We trust people to have the right vacation policy, which is there is none. You trust people to have the judgment about when it's appropriate to take time off and what times of the year and how to cover for themselves. But to that quote you mentioned, that only works if you have employees with good enough judgment to be able to handle all three of those things responsibly. And the problem is, is that if you're not careful, eventually you begin to hire people who don't have good judgment. And the well-meaning CEO or boss says, wait, we can't let this happen. We need to now put rules in place to protect ourselves mm -hmm. from the 
people who don't have the judgment. And so what Netflix did was the opposite. It said what would happen rather than building this culture to protect ourselves from people with bad judgment, what can we do to make sure that the only people there are people with good judgment? And that's largely one of the things which I believe has the biggest impact on Netflix's success is that. And lo and behold, when you begin to say, what is it that makes somebody want to work at a company like Netflix, want to work any place? And it is not fireman poles and kombucha on tap and nap pods and all the other bullshit that companies do to try and attract and retain employees. Fundamentally, the most important thing to get someone to want to work someplace is to treat them like an adult, to give them true responsibility, to rely on their judgment. And that is, in a nutshell, what the Netflix culture is about. What can we do to attract and retain people with great judgment? Because that allows us to move much more quickly, to respond much more rapidly to changes. It's a really, really powerful cultural attribute. But listen, one more quick thing is that you can't always get your hiring right. You can't say sure. we only hire A players, we only hire people with great judgment. You have to recognize you are going to make mistakes and that you have to be also willing to do is correct those mistakes, which means you have to recognize it's not a good hire or the job has changed or something about that role is different. This person is no longer suited for it. You have to be willing to say this person can't stay here anymore. See, that's a very strong statement, of course, and it reveals the power. It reveals the fact that uh, the company was agile from day one in terms of trying to steer its direction. Um, and also from the perspective of where this judgment has come from your end, because you, you guys were the founders yourself and uh, read. And that is opening up the grounds for the next question. In your book, you were praising the impact of your pretty unique outdoor experiences. You were saying everything I learned about being a leader, I learned with a backpack on. As a parent to a parent, I'd be wondering what advice would you give younger generations on how to cultivate valuable decision-making skills these days, please? Oh, that's an easy one. Practice. Entrepreneurship, leadership, decision-making, all those things are not something you learn by reading about them in a book. You don't learn them by taking a class. You learn them by doing them. And like any complicated skill, you have to start as soon as you can so you get practice and you start at a small scale. It isn't like I was, you know, working in one job for 30 or 38 years and then boom, hey, let's start a big company. Even in even as a kid, you know, I was selling things door to door. I was starting clubs. I was launching magazines. I was doing all these things at a small scale that required me to do things like recruit people to help me, to ask for money, to try and get someone to buy something. I mean, I was doing it at a very small scale where if it didn't work, it wasn't a big deal. If I was terrible at it, it may have still worked. But little by little, you hone the skill of leadership, of giving direction, of being able to tell someone something with clarity and confidence, even if you're not quite that clear or confident about it yourself. Especially, I'm, you alluded to the fact that I learned so much of this stuff in the mountains. I mean, as a young person, when I was 14, you know, I was doing these, I took, there was a, a program I did uh, called the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, which takes people into the mountains for a month and essentially teaches them leadership, but not by sitting around in a classroom, but by saying, okay, we're going to break up into groups of four and Mark, you're leader of the day. And of course, an instructor is behind you. But then you, at age 14, are making decisions about when do you leave camp? What route do you take? How long do you stop for lunch? Do you stop if someone's got a blister or ask them to keep shouldering on? And you find out 
just a few hours later just how effective a leader you actually were. You're given a chance to make real decisions with real consequences and find out almost immediately how you did. And by doing that day after day, in increasingly bigger and bigger, more and more uh, impactful situations, you internalize these things. So the time you get to Silicon Valley, you're doing it for quote unquote real. I felt I'd already been doing it for years before. See, that's fascinating, Mark, what you're saying, because a, a chapter in your book also said that there were three days you were left with no food and you had to figure out how to get that food. And, you know, asking for food somewhere in restaurant probably wasn't an option for you. So, you know, it's all of the situation you were thrown out of your comfort zone to be able to figure out, as you say, a solution. So start small and then figure out, you know, what your weaker points are to develop from there. Thank you so much for these great answers. Thank you so much. It's been spectacular. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nadia. And thanks to everybody. And uh, keep up the good work. Fight the good fight. Um, this is the best, uh, best career any of us could ever have. <laughs> exactly. Thank you guys for keeping up with us and for staying tuned till the end of this Clubhouse exclusive recording. Thank you also to our podcast editor, Daniela Kanter. Um, she's the owner of an excellent podcast herself, Moldovan Abroad, and Maria Jordan for the graphic design support. In our next episode, you'll hear from Gillian Baranov, the CEO of Lozzy app, the only app which lets you ask a lawyer a question on the go. Whether you're a growth marketer, an entrepreneur, or a student, be with us. Learn how to choose your tech stack wisely. Till next time. Bye.